November 28th, 2015. You're listening to Kevin's Oblast Radio with your host, Kevin Baird. This week, I'm going to be talking about uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria and Putin's Russia. Let's call it that. So, you know, around the turn of the century or whenever the heck it happened, when uh, penicillin was first discovered, um, you basically, if you got a bad infection before the discovery of penicillin, you were dead. You were a dead man, effectively. We had nothing for you, you know. If your body wasn't able to cope with uh, the uh, infection itself, there was no medicine to give you that was going to uh, eradicate it. You basically just died. So, um, infection was a serious thing. And, you know, most of the time, though, the human body is fairly good at uh, fighting off uh, infections. Um But, you know, when things got bad, they'd amputate and all that stuff to see what they could do. But ultimately, you know, if it was too much for you, you would would croak. Now, what what happened was, is once penicillin was found, uh, the mortality rate went way down. Um, It was like, uh, all of a sudden, one out of ten people would die if they got a bad infection. Um, it's a much better uh, mortality rate. Today, we are at about 50-50. If you get a bad infection, they will basically give you a 50% chance of survival due to the fact that the bacteria has become resistant to all of the different forms of uh, antibiotic medication that we give uh, to people so that they can survive. Well, recently, um, the bugs have evolved further, and now we're looking at a, a an age where we don't have any bi- antibiotics to give you for an infection again. Um, if you end up with E. coli, salmonella, um, some kind of um, bad uh, um, wound, surgical infection, um, death is in your future. Death. Now, you won't get it from touching things or using things from other people. You won't catch it from a, like a virus, like the common cold. Uh, bacteria, you know, generally has to get into the blood. Um, you would have to be more careful in places like, um, you know, gyms and locker rooms and things where you might have an open cut and risk uh, infecting yourself, which can happen. For instance, here's a, here's an article um, about a uh, a bug called plebiscilia, and it is, um, anyway, I'll just read it to you. This article, uh, 
was uh, updated on November 29th uh, on the other side of the planet. So it's real fresh because it's only the 28th here. It says a bug that doctors until about three years ago treated with moderate class antibiotics is now causing worry in intensive care units of hospitals across the country. Doctors report that third generation antibiotics, carbapenems, are failing to treat the Clebacillia pathogen, leading to higher mortality in patients, that's death, and peg the resistance at up to 50%. In Mumbai, which is India, the bug is being recorded in 10 to 20% of the patients in ICUs of major public hospitals. Now, I don't know if you know what the population of India is, but I think it's something like 1 billion people. And uh, I've said that 20% of the people in the ICU, because, you know, most of the people that are sick aren't going to the ICU in India, have uh, this pathogen in them. It's a serious, it's a serious thing. I mean, it's not 28 days later serious, but it's it's significant, you know. That basically means that if you go to the ICU for anything, right, you got a 50% chance of walking out of there alive. Woo! Might as well not even go. Those kind of odds. It says, cases of colistin-resistant plebiscilia. Um, colistin, or colistin, it's probably colistin, um, is a really old, uh, as they said, toxic uh, type of um, antibiotic that was like the one of last resort. When everything else failed, um, they would bring out the colistin and um, put that to work. And here we have uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria, Clebacillia, which um, is resistant to it. Uh, cases have started emerging, including four in Mumbai, Colistin is the last antibiotic available in the world for infections that the strongest antibiotics fail to treat. Clebacillia causes urinary tract infections, ventilator-acquired pneumonias, and bloodstream infections, sepsis, among other conditions, and is proving to be fatal in 30 to 40% of the patients who have contracted it, usually during a long stay in the hospital, particularly in the intensive care unit. Great! So, they recently found this also uh, um, in China, in the food in China, as well as the people in China that have eaten the food. Um, and the thing is, the way this kind of uh, bacteria stuff works is that they share genes, and so it'll eventually get into everything. And so, we have a sort of a situation, like... Um, the drug companies need to come up with something new to uh, attack this. And I'm not sure, you know, I think we can do a lot, right? We can, we can re-engineer stuff, but it takes a long time, especially when you're dealing with something that can, you know, accidentally wipe out all of the living tissue in your body. Um, so, you know, they have to be careful and, you know, you go through all these studies and tests and it takes years and, you know, you could release a new antibiotic. Uh, somebody probably will, maybe. Um, but the problem is, is that uh, these things tend to adapt fairly quickly. And the reason that they adapt fairly quickly is because uh, 
around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world, um, very often they give antibiotics to animals and uh, feed animals. And you're talking like, um, you know, food animals. And you're talking billions of animals, really. You know, just people eat all the time and you've got, you know, uh, hogs and beef and I imagine they do poultry too at times. Uh, because you don't want some pathogen running through your farm and wiping out your whole livestock. So they treat and treat and treat, and these billions and billions of animals, you know, go by through every year. Uh, ultimately, you know, it just takes one to uh, develop the mutation necessary to uh, become uh, resistant to whatever antibiotic that we're using. So... We have a problem. And, you know, we've talked about outlawing that sort of behavior, but it big, big aggro is so big. And um, the food situation around the world is also somewhat, you know, tenuous uh, that it's just not, it doesn't take. And so now we're looking at a situation where um, we are going to have these bacteria now uh, potentially wipe people out for the dumbest thing. You might just cut your finger and you'll be dead. Just like it used to be. Just like, yeah, you know, great, 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 great grandpa, you know, McNichol. He, uh, he got a bruise on his knee and then he died. This is what happens. Because uh, we fucked it up. We, we fucked it up. And, um, yeah. I don't have too much else to say about it. It's You could read about it, though. You know, you could go online and read about uh, Colliston Resistance. And find out all about it and how it's about to get a lot worse. It's great. Really, really great. Fucked up. Um, it won't wipe out humanity or anything, but, um, you know, it has a high degree of likelihood of, um, making some other things, uh, not happen. Like, you will probably not have an organ transplant later in life if you need one. Because the risks of infection are too great, especially when they can't be treated. So that thing that we do for people where we give them new livers and kidneys and things like that will end. Uh, until we come up with another drug that is able to kill off the bacteria. So that's great. Great. And I think what you'll see is you'll see a big drop off in the number of people on the planet. Slowly. It'll take a while, but, you know... Population rate's going to go way down because, uh, yeah, going to get wiped out. Gonna really, you know what? Buy, buy stock and soap because people are going to be uh, disinfecting the hell out of everything in the future. Going to be one clean world soon um, in order to try to stamp out uh, this kind of bacteria. Great. Really great. So let's talk about Putin. Putin's Russia. Well, a happier topic, so to speak. I got asked to talk about this. I, I'll tell you. Okay, look. I don't know how much you know about Russia and the whole, the whole country. You might not know very much. You might know a whole heck of a lot. I'm going to go on the uh, the idea that you 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 don't know that much. Basically, 
a long time ago, okay, there was World War II, and the Russians lost like 25% of their population uh, fighting against the, the Nazis. And the Nazis had uh, gone east and basically wiped out the leadership of all of these, you know, countries that they uh, were involved with, you know. Um, if they were allied with those countries, it was because they had put in their own puppet leaders at some point in the past. Otherwise, they went in, got rid of the leadership, and put in their own leaders. So when Russia was moving back west, they were saying to themselves, well, we're not going to... Um, just put anybody into power, you know, let them, we're not going to let them freely elect a, a fascist government again, because we've had enough of this. We fought a huge war, forget it, we're taking over. So uh, they basically put communists in charge of um, all of these different countries uh, to the West. And ultimately that became the Soviet Union. Um, so the Soviet Union you know, to get into communism and everything, there's there's two there's two ideologies that the Soviet Union was dealing with. The the the, the main one, communism, okay, came out of this very violent uprising that took place, wherein um, the working class party got sick of the um, the rich people. To put it in, because you could say all this stuff like the bourgeois and the intellectua, um, into intellectia, I can't say that right. But I mean, ultimately, they got tired of the rich people. And they said, you know, we want to live in a society where there are no poor people and there are no rich people. There are just people people. And that was the idea behind communism. But Karl Marx basically said, you know, if you're going to do that, it has to be a violent uprising because the people in power are not going to um, let go of their power. And so you have to basically kill people in order to get it done. And Russia went through this big thing where they, you know, the people went and killed a ridiculous amount of people in order to put communism into power. And then right after that, they ended up in the war. So... You have this situation where um, you have that sort of ideology going on in the country where um, everybody is is equal, and in some ways this works. It works because there's no poor people. There's no there's no ghetto in there was no ghetto in the Soviet Union. Did you didn't go to the Soviet Union ghetto? There was no such thing. You because everybody was. Uh, had a job, but legally you had to work. You couldn't not work. You had to have a job. And if you, for some reason, couldn't have a job, then uh, the, the state took care of you. But ultimately, you know, the state had a controlled um, economy. You went to a job and you got paid. It's not like, say, North Korea's communism, where I think you go to work and you don't get shit, but you have to go to work. Uh, in... Um, Soviet communism, you went to work and you got paid. You didn't get paid much, but you got paid. And what they had was a fixed economy. So all of the things that people needed in stores was very cheap and inexpensive. You know, if you needed um, 
uh, food or, or, you know, uh, toilet paper or whatever. All of that stuff was there and it was, you know, pennies or, or whatever. It, it cost nothing. <clears throat> but then, if you wanted better stuff, uh, better appliances or um, a car or you wanted nicer clothes, etc. Well, you could buy those things, but those things would cost you a lot more money. So you could work more, and you could get paid more, which was allowed. And you could afford better things, but it would take you a long time. You could also buy things from other countries. Um, you know, you would go to these special shops, they were taxed, all this stuff, they were very expensive, but you could buy them. You could, you could acquire these things. Not everything, but most things. Because obviously they didn't want too much, you know, Western ideology to be coming into their country. You know, they try to control that sort of stuff. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get um, uh, things at official places, but you could get things at unofficial places, you know, through a sort of a black market. So, uh, Soviet Union lasted about, I don't know, 75, 50 years, 50 years. Yeah, something like that. And um, Putin was in the KGB, which, you know, is kind of like the FBI and the CIA rolled into one. Um, and, you know, he came, he came out of that, and he came out of a very Soviet system. And when you were in the KGB, I mean, you know, you had to be for the, for the Communist Party this one ideology. But the other ideology that uh, the Soviet Union had was a dictatorship. It was essentially um, a group of people trying to have a, a socialist system, and then that was ruled by, you know, Joseph Stalin pr primarily, and then, you know, in the beginning, um, because Lenin, who helped create it, lost his mind, he went crazy, probably from syphilis or something, they say. Um, so Joseph Stalin, and then later, you know, you have all of these other, you have some in-between leaders, but, you know, the, the major ones is like uh, Khrushchev, uh, Brezhnev, and then Gorbachev. And there are some in-between, but they didn't do anything because as these um, leaders got uh, one to the next, basically, they were just old men that were from the party in the beginning, and, uh, you know, just uh, it was just a succession of power um, without any change because these people had grown comfortable. So, although Khrushchev basically de-Stalinized a lot of things because Stalin was uh, a ridiculous dictator, which often happened um, with communists. But anyhow, so Putin, he goes into this thing and, he, you know, he, he, be, he becomes, you know part of the whole ideology you had to go meet people and talk to them and find out well you know if you believe in this um the social the socialism or do you have desires for western uh things you know and uh you know because the danger of of your own internal um people uh, spies and so on is that they get turned on to the wealth of the west and they want more money and more things and you know, they're offered those things. And the spies, effectively, the, the spy game is really weird, you know, because 
there's definitely espionage that goes on. Hollywood makes it, you know, probably a bigger, um, you know, uh, game of the whole thing. Um, than it probably really is. I think a lot of spying from what I've read is deals with basically just trying to turn people over and you either wait for people to sort of show up and say, Hey, I'm, I need money. You know, I, I want to work for you or, um, you find a way to apply pressure on someone and usually it's financially. And so, uh, you could tell these things with the KGB, but the thing, the, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, if you're growing up in this um, communist system, you have uh, an ideology that you don't like the West. You don't like the West's ideas. You don't like um, what they stand for. And, um, uh, you know, you don't like all of the, the ideas of capitalism, especially if you're in the KGB. I mean, you know, the, the average Russian person probably didn't think that way. They probably said, hey, uh, you know, I, my life's pretty good, but I wish my life was better. You know, but, um, yeah, so what happened then is that, um, Gorbachev, when he was in power, he, uh, being the last, uh, Soviet Union leader, um, well, I should say the last Russian Soviet Union leader, uh, he, he had tried to westernize some of Russia by, um, um, creating a more open atmosphere, but that ultimately just led to the people being even more disgruntled. And so they ran out of food and then the people revolted. And then you had this, um, uh, democracy take place and Yeltsin becomes the president and power of democracy in, in Russia. But Yeltsin was not a good leader. He wasn't, he wasn't a good leader. He was trying to give, a democracy to Russia, which was great, but he also didn't know um, how to put on the brakes in, in a certain sense. Private organizations that Russia owned, um, let's say they're oil, right? So the, so the state owns everything. The state owns all the farms. The state owns the mining. The state owns the oil. It owns the fishing. It owns all of this stuff, right? So now you say, okay, well, now we're going to be a democracy, and we have to uh, no longer have the government in control of uh, these these businesses. We need to inject capitalism. So instead of like sort of breaking them up into smaller chunks and saying, you know, you get a little bit and you get a little bit and you get a little bit, so you instill competition, uh, what Russia would do is uh, what Yeltsin did is basically he gave whole giant companies to individuals. So overnight, you have somebody who owns all the oil in Russia. I mean, effectively. And now that person is an unbelievable billionaire. You know, and, and this goes on and on through all of the industries that Russia has. Is you have all of these individuals who, because they were, you know, friends with such and such, they, they got to have, uh, you know, extraordinary wealth uh, owning a company that you know, it was just run by the government previously. So, by the time Putin comes into power, the whole thing's a freaking mess. Russia is just in a, in a, in a bad way. There's billionaires making huge sums of money. Most of the people are, are terribly poor. You've got 
ghettos and slums and things forming because, um, you know, there's just there's there's no jobs of wage, and you have this flight of all of these intellectual people because school was free in the Soviet Union, um, leaving and going to other countries because they can make a lot more money in other places. So, so the first thing Putin does is he tries to reel in a lot of these wealthy uh, people, and he throws some of them in jail and. And so you can sit there and say, well, this isn't right, you know, that he, he did this sort of thing, which is probably true, but he didn't really have a lot of choice because, you know, he couldn't, well, maybe he did. Maybe he could have done some sort of anti-monopoly laws and um, broke all of these companies up, and, and I'm not sure exactly what the thing is, but my guess is, is that he took over these things for his own benefit and for the benefit of the country. But I think it worked. Like, it worked in the sense that a lot more people had jobs, a lot more money got in the hands of the people, but also a nice big chunk of money stayed with Putin. And so, you know, the people that owned the companies and, you know, paid their respects to Putin um, got to stay in business, and the ones that didn't ended up, you know, switching hands, going away, being assassinated, being killed. And then you have uh, the press, which used to be free, and then ultimately was cracked down on, and investigators were assassinated and killed. And you end up with uh, a not-so-free press that follows the, um, you know, follows what Putin wants done. They have a constitution, and they have a freely electable uh, president and, and prime minister, but the uh, rules to actually be considered on the ballot are ridiculous. You 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 can't possibly win um, because of the whole deck is stacked against you. So, because they make the laws, they get to do whatever they want. So, the fact he, he he's basically just a... a a, a dictator, and he's in control of the whole country. Now, you would think that would be enough. But the thing is, is that um, Putin's a bit paranoid, I think. Like most leaders in, in power, he has a certain sense of paranoia that, uh, you know, the page will turn on him, and... Uh, there will be a revolt, there will be uh, a war, there will be something that will um, come to bite him in the ass. And he's got a lot to hide. He's got a big pile of history, and he's got, you know, all of these front companies um, that are basically uh, something that the next political... Uh, Prime Minister, leader of Russia, would be able to find and then prosecute Putin for all his corruption. So Putin does not want to get out of power. Therefore, he's going to do whatever he can to stay in power. So, what do we have happen? Well, the, one of the things is that when the Soviet Union broke up, you had this situation where 
after 50 years and the way the Soviet Union government worked was that you have all of these ethnic Russians living in other countries. You have them living all over the place in different pockets because let's say they wanted to go build a nuclear reactor somewhere. The people in, say, um, Dagestan didn't have the technical know-how because they were all peasants. So they would send all of the people from Moscow to Dagestan and say, you're going to live here and you're going to work there because we need you to do this. And you were around other Russian people. You were in this new city that they built just for you. And you said, okay, because we're all in the Soviet Union together. Hooray. And this happened in Ukraine, and this happened in Bulgaria, and it happened in Belarus, and it happened in everywhere. All of the Baltic countries, it happened in, uh, you know, um, Kazakhstan, and uh, everywhere. Everywhere that they had a country, there were all these people. So, <clears throat> Soviet Union falls apart. Now you have this situation. You have all of these people... Let's use the Dagestan reference again. You have all of these Russians in Dagestan. They're technically Russian, but their you know their children and everything are are uh, are growing up in Dagestan. So they're Dagestan citizens, but they are ethnic Russians. They have, no, they have no culture. They share nothing with the people in Dagestan. So, you have this problem in Georgia, which is a country, not just a state. And in the country of Georgia, you have these two, uh, let's call them breakaway republics. You have um, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And these two little pieces of land... Kind of looks like little cities in the northern part of uh, Georgia were sort of breakaway from Georgia that Georgia couldn't get control over. And then, you know, Putin sweeps down with his military during um, a very brief war that they had with Georgia before uh, Europe got involved. And he basically took Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Now, at this present time, I'm not sure if those uh, two, um, well, those two republics are part of the Soviet, or excuse me, well, might as well be the Soviet, are part of Russia now or not. They may still be standalone republics, but they're probably dependent on Russia a great deal um, because, you know, they don't have anything. They're too small to be of any sort of self-sufficient um, size. So Russia obviously either helps them or the whole thing's a slum. I don't know. However, they're no longer controlled by Georgia. Georgia says that they're still their their, their uh, territory, but Russia doesn't care. Russia would have taken, as far as Putin is concerned, all of Georgia. And that's kind of what happened in Chechnya. Chechnya was a breakaway republic that kind of wasn't recognized by Russia, but Russia was too weak at the time to go in and stop it. And so Chechnya, they sort of ignored Chechnya. Chechnya had its own independent 
um, government and they were, you know, de facto independent from Russia. And they probably could have stayed that way, except that um, when the Muslims uh, went into Chechnya, they decided that they were going to also liberate Dagestan, and, which is to the east. And so they started to have terrorist um, action in Dagestan, as well as um, threatening things in Moscow. And so Putin sent his military to war in Chechnya and in order to wipe out the Muslims and push them out. That's what he did. And uh, Chechnya is now back to being part of Russia again. So, now if you're one of these other breakaway countries, you're probably like, hmm, this is fucked up. He's kind of going around and he's retaking up all of his old Soviet Union countries. And uh, who's he, who's he going to take next? Well, the next comes uh, the Ukraine, right? Eastern Ukraine and uh, the, the Crimea, Southern Peninsula, decide that they are ethnic Russian. And they want to be back as part of Russia. And uh, for all intents and purposes, even though he says it's not true, he moves in Russian troops and he creates um, these republics, basically. Um, well, Crimea, he takes and annexes. He, he, he takes the Crimea and that's just his. He's, he's not even going to... It's not even up for debate. It's just like, that's ours. We're taking it. We don't care what you do to us. Tough shit. It's our country. We're taking that piece of land. Uh, as the eastern Ukraine, he, he is uh, less interested in that because it probably doesn't have any real value to him other than a potential buffer zone um, from the west. But, uh, you know, he's 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 gotten so much pressure from the west, so many sanctions and things that he's... He's just not, not quite going to um, go to war over those people. Like he, like he'll let them fight, and he'll give them the military hardware, and he'll provide all of the protection and things. But he's not quite going to go to war, Russia against Ukraine, because there's not a lot of value in that. There's just a, there's just a lot of poverty. It's it's not really going to. It's not really going to work for him. So it's kind of where we're at right now, but that could change because he may decide that, well, since the international community isn't listening to me and um, the things that I need and want, they want to keep hitting me with these sanctions, perhaps I'll just take all of the Ukraine and then we'll negotiate. I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt that he, he comes up with a strategy like this um, because, you know, then the rest of the world would have to negotiate. The Ukraine's not part of NATO, so um, nobody's going to go to war over the Ukraine. And uh, they would negotiate, though. They would negotiate long and hard for Putin to give it back, and he could give it back on his terms. So stay tuned. That could all happen. But in the meantime, now we have Syria. So down in Syria, we have a weak leadership and the and the thing about syria that you know you, you a lot of people don't understand or don't care or know or whatever is that i'm moving my microphone around so my voice gets louder i'm sorry i just i, I can't sit in that same position anymore um 
the thing about Syria is that Syria was a made country. We created it. We created it. Well, not the United States, Britain and France did. I think it was France. France created it. Um, essentially, you know, after World War One, you had all this land and they tried to break it up into tribal areas. And, um, that ultimately became Syria. And so instead of having all of these different tribes, you had, um, a few tribes and one of the tribes is the Alawites and they kind of control the West, the coast of Syria and the Western part of Syria and the Alawites, um, you know, are basically are, uh, uh, you know, like, a, I don't know how many people, but let's just say millions of people. Okay. And, um, Assad is an Alawite and those are all his people. That's his tribe. And then you have all these other tribes and, uh, they all have different, um, you know, they all have different ideologies and beliefs and all of these things. Okay. So, so Assad's in power and the Alawites though, make up only a percentage of, um, Syria. You know, they're like, it's almost like saying, um, uh, Chinese people in the United States, right? There's probably millions of Chinese people in the United States. And the Chinese elect the Chinese leader, okay? And the Chinese leaders in power in the United States. And, you know, the Chinese occupy, um, you know, let's just say like Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont and, uh, you know, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. And that's, that's like their area right there. That's like, that's the, that's where the Chinese live. And then the rest of the country, you know, is just uh, Europeans and blacks and uh, whatever, Arabs and Mexicans and, you know, it's a melting pot in the United States. So you got all these people, they're all together, but they all don't get along, right? You know, there's lots of problems with ethnicity in the United States, let alone we're not in tribes. You know, we don't have rules that are legal that say, hey, well, I'm, you know, this, so I get this perk and you don't get it. Ha ha, because you're in the wrong place. So it would be difficult for us to rise up against an organized Chinese leadership that controls the country. We, we couldn't get all of our is in agreement to say, look, we, we all agree that the Chinese are bad, but I'm not going to work with this asshole right next to me because fuck him. Right. So, so that's a way of keeping yourself in power by having fight people fighting each other on the, you know, on the inside. So, okay. But the long comes ISIS. Where did ISIS come from? ISIS, ISIS is, people got to understand something. The, the, the Islamic world is uh, kind of like like there it's <laughs> it's this thing where 
you know, there are very wealthy people that are Islamic. There are countries that are Islamic. And there is a, um, a vast cadre of players in the Islamic world. And they have different ideologies, all of these things. But many of them believe that the Western ideas are wrong and that the, um, the ideas that are uh, of um, Muslim thinking are correct. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they all believe in Sharia. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they all believe that, you know, you should cut people's heads off and all of that fun stuff. But what it does mean is that they disagree with the way of, they, they don't like this total freedom for everyone. They think that, you know, everybody should be um, following the ways of, uh, you know, the Quran and all that stuff. Now, how they do that is the same as probably how, you know, most Christians do it too. You know, Christians think everybody should be following the Bible and you don't have to, but you really should be because, you know, that would be good. Um, and I think, you know, that's how every religion is in a way. Uh, but here's my point is that like, if you were to go out and say, you know what, I'm going to, um, take over, let's say the, I don't know, I'm just going to pick a country. Let's say Oman, right? If you went out there with, in to take over the country of Oman and you said, um, you know, we're, uh, peaceful, uh, God-fearing um, Protestants, and we're here to establish our own country uh, because God wanted us to, and you claim in Scripture, and you show proof in Scripture that, um, that this is supposed to be that way, which I'm sure you could find somehow. Um, most of your, most Christians, most Protestants, most Christians in general would say that's totally retarded. I'm totally not, you know, I don't agree with that, that you guys can go over there and overthrow people and kill people and say you're peaceful, but you're not. You're all about killing and, and uh, creating this, uh, this country. But there's a good percentage of, of Protestants that would uh, give money to this. Because the idea of having um, a Christian country that was um, all their own, that had their own rules, that followed Christian ideology and welcomed only Christians, would be very appealing to Christians. And so um, many of them, especially in you know more uh, fringe groups, would go over there and fight or, or participate. So that's kind of what happens with Al-Qaeda. That's kind of what happens with ISIS is you have these people that are saying, hey, we're creating this movement, this thing to disrupt this idea so we can create our own country, etc. And there's a lot of money being funneled to these people. And so that is kind of why they sit there and say that they're doing it for religious reasons is because 
if they don't say that, then they won't get the money. Because money is what matters to everyone. Most of these guys that you see on TV and in news things are getting paid. They're getting paid pretty well, actually. Um, they just had a thing on 60 Minutes or Frontline. I think it was Frontline. And they showed that there was ISIS in Afghanistan. And the guy in Afghanistan was getting paid $700 a month to be in ISIS instead of Al-Qaeda. And I know that they used to pay the guy, Al-Qaeda used to pay the guys. $700 a month in Afghanistan is a huge amount of money. And so, you know, these guys dress up in ISIS, they wave the ISIS flag, and, uh, you know, once in a while they find somebody that they can train to be a martyr to go blow themselves up, while meanwhile they have enough money to feed their kids and their families and take care of business because they don't have anything else. And so for you to sit there and say, all right, I need to, you know, uh, we are the, the, the caliphate. We are the, the country. Send your money to us. We're going to, you know, make a Muslim country and they're, and we're, we totally in on all this stuff. Great. But most of those people aren't blowing themselves up over Allah. They're blowing themselves up over George Washington on the $1 bill. So now you have this thing where we had the war in Iraq. And the people that were in charge in Iraq were the Ba'athists. And the Ba'athists, the regime, which was, you know, um, Saddam Hussein and company, uh, that was a political. That wasn't a, it wasn't tribal. It was political. They were the Ba'athists. So when people had to evacuate, when they had to get out of the country because the U.S. military was dropping bombs and coming with all of their forces, they had to go to an area that was friendly to Bathists. And the only one that was there, that was connected, was Syria. So they all went over there. The ones that could. They all went over military guys and everything, retreated into Syria. And they took up and, and lived in places in Syria that were the that were sort of in hiding in essence, from the Alawites. So, you know, the, you have this leadership there that's trained, that understands military tactics, and they join up with the leader, which, you know, essentially the leader of uh, the leadership of ISIS, basically the religious guys are the guys that do what? They get the money. The money comes funneling into them. They have control. They're the bank. So the other guys, though, are military trained. So now you have this military trained uh, group of rebels that grow into a powerhouse because they actually know what the fuck they're doing unlike the rest of the 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 rebels who who don't they don't understand any kind of military tactics so you have this um this rapid advance and you know you're talking about guys that were you know when they started killing some of these guys they were those remember those playing cards that they gave out during the Iraq war that showed all the leadership 
Each one had like a different leader on one of the playing cards. And as they started fighting these battles, we actually started to find some of the guys on those cards that were missing. They were fighting for ISIS. So they know their own country. So going out of getting out of Syria and going in and mowing everybody down in Iraq became fairly easy for them. And they got right on to the to the edges of Baghdad because, you know, they they were just sweeping everybody up. But they don't have enough people to really sort of um, create the kind of uh, massive, you know, force necessary to get in there. And but, you know, they were they were really making inroads and, until the United States started to help out with the bombing and uh, getting, you know, a lot more pressure on them. So they had to retreat because, I mean, at this point, our bombs are so damn good. You know, we can basically hit one person. Uh, just walking down the street if we want to. You know, we got drones and satellites and eyes in the sky and nobody's, you know, you, you can't be waving that black flag around out in the desert. We're going to effing see it and we're going to blow you up. So, the problem was, was that, you know, as we were doing this bombing campaign, um, a lot of that's going on in Iraq, not a hell of a lot of it was going on in Syria, a little bit, but not very much. Most of it's going on in Iraq, and, you know, ISIS today still controls huge city in Iraq. Nobody has gotten them out of there, so they still control Iraq uh, fairly well, and... Um, Nobody wants to put the boots on the ground to go into this big-ass city, Mosul, I believe it is, and remove them. So ISIS stays. Stays in power. Now, in Syria, there's less bombing going on. So, Assad, being the leader of Syria, runs out of Alawites. He runs out of... He just simply runs out of troops. He has the money to buy things, if anybody would sell him arms, like Russia, but he doesn't have enough troops. At which point he tells Russia, he says, hey, listen, I could use your help. I need help. I got, I don't have enough, ma I just simply don't have enough manpower. So, Russia, you know, they could leave him in the lurch and allow his government to fall, but this is this would be bad for Russia because Syria is like the only ally they have in the Mediterranean, and so they have a like a na like a a naval yard there. And if you lose that, then they don't have any reason to be in the Mediterranean, and they don't have any sort of friendly port to go to. But that's not a huge thing. I mean, Russian Navy hasn't been anything for a while, and. Uh, they don't really have much of a blue water navy left, other than their submarines, and even those, I you know, probably a dozen are, are out there at any one time. Um, probably not even that many. So, you know, losing that port of call isn't that big of a deal. I think it's more just the fact that I, I understand this sort of um, rich guy attitude 
like I used to, you know, work for people that were, um, rich guys in power that, you know, if you ask them for a favor, they'd be like, yeah, you know, they take care of it. Like one time I said, Hey, can I be, uh, I was tired of being a cook. And I said, can I be a, a bar bag? And, uh, it's the guy that gets ice and restocks the liquor and stuff like that. He said, yeah, buddy, I'll take care of that for you. And then the next day he said, Hey, this is what you got to do. You're, you're now a bar bag. Just like that. They didn't even replace me. They didn't even get anybody else in the kitchen. Just, just went ahead and said, that dude's a bar bag right now. Because, you know, that's what they do. And then they let everybody else try to fix the problem. And I think that's kind of what Putin did. Is that he sat down and he said, all right, let's go into Syria and let's start bombing things in Syria because nobody else is and we need to go in there and do it. Now, we sit there and say, hey, they're, you know, bombing the the, the other guy, etc. They're not bombing ISIS like we are. That's probably true, but that's because most of ISIS is probably in Iraq at this point. So anyway, now, now there's a major city in the Syria that still have ISIS as well. But so Russia goes in there and I think it's mainly has to do with influence. It has to do with the fact that Russia is showing that they stand by their allies so that they can, so that Putin can have some influence around the world and say, well, you know, we'll stand by you, you know, if you go with us instead of say the United States on stuff, etc. So it's very important for him that this works out, that Assad manages to stay in power. And frankly, you know, as bad as the regime is, I think that you would have, well, you'd have a civil war of, of in essence, because all of the Alawites are not going to get along with whatever government comes into power instead of Assad. So they are going to, there's going to be a, you know, a mass uh, revolt or you're talking about like genocide. You're talking about people that are so angry at the Alawites that they're just going to start wiping them out. And, you know, this idea of um, eliminating Assad uh, through military means is, um, it just sort of, it sort of speaks to the fact that, like, I don't think, um, I don't think that, like, President Obama and his senior staff really understood the nature of Syria, and they thought it would just be like any of these other um, Arab Spring countries that sort of had a revolt, and then they had a, you know, democracy came to town, and whatever. Like, didn't really work out too well in Libya, though. That that shit's a mess over there, and um, it's not working out too well in Syria here either. Uh, but I don't think they really thought about the, the implications. So, you know, rather than us getting lost in a quagmire in there, you know, we let other people do, but now Russia's in there dropping bombs. Now, so, now we have this Russian warplane that gets shot down over Turkey. So here's the thing. In the northern part of uh, Syria, there are... Um, Turkmen. And they're being supplied by the Turkish. They're being trained by the Turkish. They probably have Turkish military regulars mixed in with their ranks. They're probably Turkish advisors. I mean, I can't say that for sure, but it's probably true. 
Um, and the Turkmen are trying to, they're fighting ISIS and they're trying to take over this territory. And, you know, Turkey has an interest in supporting these Turkmen because they don't want the Kurds to the east um, taking this land instead because they have a long history of, of uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, a long history of uh, fighting against the Kurds who are, um, have historically been a uh, people without a territory and uh, Turkey refuses to give any of their territory to them. So, you know, they're almost like a giant bunch of refugees living out there. And so, for whatever reason, you know, um, Turkey would rather have the Turkmen have control of this territory. So, the Turkmen are being trained, are being, you know, are fighting Assad, and to a lesser extent ISIS, but mainly Assad's forces, because they're the ones that are up there. And so now comes Russia, and Russia starts bombing and killing Turkmen and probably Turkish military, Turkish advisors, that nobody knows are actually there because it would be too sensitive, but are there. And the leadership in Turkey are probably just pissed. They're like, what the fuck are these guys doing? We have this coalition going on. The whole world is fighting. We're all working together to wipe out ISIS and to take out Assad. And these this fucking asshole comes over here and starts bombing and killing our people. Now I got to send my fucking people home in fucking body bags. Because this dumb, this fucking dumbass decides that now at the last minute he's going to come in and he's going to save fucking Assad, right? So the leadership and the military are pissed. So they flew over Turkish airspace once, and Turkey said, "Listen, if you do that shit again, we're going to blow you out of the sky." And they did it again, and they did. Now, it's unfortunate that people had to die and it had to come to this. But it's basically like, you know, they know that Putin knows that they have troops there, right? Because all of these people have intelligence. Everybody knows what the hell is going on in these positions of power. So they know that Putin has deliberately been attacking these people that he knows are Turkish people helping to fight this Assad regime. And, you know, Putin said, fuck it, we're going to do it anyway. So I think the leadership of Turkey said the same thing. Fuck it, we're going to blow your plane out of the sky, and we're going to show you that we're not messing around. Now, that's not going to turn into World War Three or anything. Putin's not... Putin. Putin doesn't want to die, okay? He's going to send um, anti-air to Syria and probably stack it on the border. Um, realistically, though, he's not, because he doesn't have troops on the ground. He's probably just going to stick his anti-aircraft around his air base and whoopity-doo. That's not going to do anything. Um, and he hasn't even committed to putting any troops really on the ground other than the troops that he has that are operating the air base that they built. So nothing's nothing's going to happen. It's just you know, 
this is just a dick measuring contest between the two countries. Um, he's not going to mess with NATO. Uh, now he's trying to work together with France. And a lot of that has to do more or less with the fact of the sanctions. It has to do with uh, opening up lines of communication. Hey, we're friendly with France. He can help. They can help us in the UN. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll join hands together and then maybe we can get these, uh, these, these sanctions removed from us, you know, because we're nice guys. May, may or may not work. Probably won't work. Um, but you know, it's a step in the right direction if they're going to try and work together to hit the proper targets in Syria and not the ones that, uh, have, um, Turkish or even United States military. I mean, imagine if the United States military was over there, uh, embedded in training, which was what we do, rebels. Um, well, in Iraq we do anyway. And Syria, or uh, Russia comes over and bombs and blows up our guys. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We'd be like, look, man, you fly another airplane over here. We're going to blow the fucking thing out of the sky. So... What's the future then? What's 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 this guy got to do? Well, it's a little bit scary. I mean, for one thing, they have more navy being built right now than uh, any time since the Soviet Union, and um, the you know they've they've had full on military exercises uh, in the uh, in the Arctic, and uh, they have been doing you know mass military drills. They built an entirely new. Um, military, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, like a, like a Pentagon type of building um, for all senior leadership uh, to monitor. It's like a war. It's like a giant war room. It's, 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 it's Dr. Strangelove's style stuff. If it had a round table, it would totally be Dr. Strangelove. Well, you know, he's not crazy. He's, he's, he's not crazy yet. It's a little worrisome that he could become crazy. But, uh, I think his goal ultimately is to, um, distract the Russian people from any sort of, um, idea that they're going to be able to uh, vote him out or, um, uh, you know, turn the government into something else so that he'll look at foreign affairs as a way to distract the the people and have them be more concerned about uh, war an impending war um this that and the other thing i think though if i was russia if i was putin and my goal was to um, continue to do these land grabs um that they would probably be thinking more along the lines of going south and trying to take over um places like uh Tajikistan, which has a massive wealth of um, natural gas, is uh, rich off of natural gas, uh, and they have no military to speak of. They have nothing, and it would be easy for him to go in there and take that country over, and probably nobody would say anything about it because it's run by a you know a, a dictatorship. So it's um. You know, if he was really interested in recreating the Soviet Union, uh, that kind of thing would be my next uh, my next target. You know, he, he we've had some other countries like uh, Kazakhstan come out and you know 
join with um, Russia's various um, cooperation and trade agreement type of things in order to uh, stab off any kind of um, Georgia-type situation where Russia decides to go in and take over and uh, under the guise of liberating its its people. Well, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, but I think as long as Putin has sort of control over these other countries, like he had in the Ukraine, had being the pre, you know, the right word, then uh, he he's fine with letting them sort of exist as independent states. But I think if they go against his ideology, then military action takes place. So I don't know where else, you know, I, I spend a lot more time thinking about it than I probably should. And I don't, I can't read the man's mind. And, you know, there's the good Putin and there's the bad Putin. And, you know, I think ultimately he's trying to um, recreate the, uh, the Soviet Union in one sense. And uh, in the other sense, he's mainly just trying to keep himself in power so that, uh, you know, he doesn't end up getting hung uh, from a rope somewhere. And so what that will take and how long that will take. I mean, the guy doesn't look like he's that old, so we could be dealing with this for another 20 years or more. Um, it's just, you know, will we run into a situation of ongoing escalation, military escalation, and uh, potentially fighting proxy wars, like we fought in Vietnam and Korea? It's possible. Uh, I don't think that um, it's likely to happen anytime soon, unless it happens in the Ukraine, but it's certainly possible. It more or less depends on the economic situation in Western Europe, as well as other countries that surround Russia, and less on the United States. The United States, I think, is more or less just kind of like uh, an annoyance uh, to Russia. Putin doesn't think that they're going to go to war with us, right? And they know that we put sanctions on his people, and that kind of thing. And so we're very annoying. But he also knows that, hey, it's the United States, and we elect a new leader every four years, so maybe we get rid of this guy, and then the next guy comes in, and uh, we can talk to that next guy, because I can't talk to this guy. You know, I could talk to George Bush. I couldn't talk to uh, Barack Obama. So maybe maybe that's what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, then we'll go back into a situation of uh, being in a more relaxed posture militarily with Russia. We don't have to have their bombers flying by um, and escorting them out of our airspace. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's just a lot of dick waving. But it's, it's really nothing that I think at this point we need to be too worried about. But as I always say, keep your eyes on what's going on in the Ukraine. When you see it in the news, you know, kind of keep up on it a little bit. Vice News does a really good feature on it all the time. Right now it's quiet, 
and there's a good possibility that nothing will happen in the Ukraine. But if things go in another direction, if things expand in the Ukraine and you end up with a, a you know, war breaking out there, um, and Russia gets involved, then it will kind of speak to the idea of um, where things are going to go. Whether it's going to become a, a proxy war or an expansion of war, um, you know, or not. And we'll keep watching Syria. But look, I think in Syria, the, the situation there is never going to change because there's nobody on the ground willing to do the work. So you're either going to have Assad back in power or you're going to have ISIS in power. And um, Turkmen or not, you're, uh, you know, there's nobody else that's going to control that country. So nobody wants to, uh, nobody wants to do it. So that's where we uh, end up, uh, like kind of like Iraq during between before the invasion of Iraq and after uh, the Gulf War, you have this big, you know, decade or whatever it was of time where we just, you know, bombed and enforced a no-fly zone. It's kind of like what we're doing now in Syria. It's just going to go on and on and on and on um, until something happens, until, you know, somebody blinks. And maybe it'll be a different leadership in the United States or... Uh, Russia or something, but yeah, I just don't see any, I don't see any changes happening anytime soon. So if there are though, you can always listen to this show and we'll talk about, all right. So that's it long enough. Thanks for listening. Peace.